Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the Soundologia podcast, episode number four. Soundologia is where we have conversations about sound, art, and technology. If you're interested in modern and experimental music, various sounds, unique sound experiments, and different approaches to sound perceptions, this is the place for you. I'm your host, Peja Kovacevic, and I would like to welcome you to the Soundologia platform and our podcast series. Make sure to like the Soundologia page on Facebook and follow us on Instagram to stay up to date with our upcoming guests and events. As Soundologia brings artists who explore the phenomena of sound from a different perspective, I couldn't help but to invite Professor Dr. Jacob Sudol to be one of my first guests of my show. Jacob is one of the leading names in experimental music and a Miami-based artist, but also someone who educates students about a new realm of sound. Good morning, Jacob, or good evening. Yeah, good evening. Or for me, good, e- good morning to you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you are now in Taiwan, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually at this similar latitude to you, but... Um, upside down. So we're on the opposite sides of the world right now. Jacob, you're a composer, performer, technologist, and associate professor of music technology and composition at Florida International University, and a coordinator in the music technology area. I was thinking of splitting this conversation into two parts where we will speak about the significance of education in using new technologies that allow the creation of sound. In the second part of this episode, we may touch upon some of your works and dig into some of the techniques you use to create them. So Jacob, can you take us back to the beginning and tell us how you discovered your affinity for experimental music making and performing it? You know, honestly, this is something I've thought about a fair amount and I don't want to try to construct a narrative uh, post hoc, so I might just point on a few little things mm-hmm. that sort of point to little touchstones throughout my life. And, you know, that kind of maybe gives a little bit of an idea of how development things developed over the course of time. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty grateful to my parents because um, when I grew up, they never played children's music for me. Um, they just listened to music. So I never had like this idea that there was like, you know, this sort of music that is for kids or music for other levels. It was always just Music is something that you you should be serious about and critical with and listen to because you like it and because you think you can gather something in, from it and learn from it and enjoy it, you know. So for me, that was always kind of the attitude. It wasn't just like music is just something you do. And there was no sort of level of, how, I sh- how shall I say, sort of denigration to me as a child to just listen to children's music. So there were a number of, you know, songs and things I listened to as a kid that kind of I really loved and I think sort of speak to the more affinities for experimental tendencies that came later. I mean, I was really into the Beatles when I was a little kid and my favorite songs were always like my favorite songs were the ones were the weirdest. So, you know, I remember I, I, as a kid, I was just like, I loved, I am the walrus. And my favorite part about I with the walrus was like the tape collages, these like really weird, noisy passages. <laughs> Or I really enjoyed um, Sgt. Pepper's 
a Lonely Hearts Club band, which my parents had on vinyl, a very rare mono copy, which I'm grateful to have myself now. Um, but particularly, you know, A Day in the Life was really something I loved, particularly because there's this passage where, you know, as I now know, they got a number of orchestral musicians and they said, we're going to count to 20. And you go from the lowest note on your instrument to the highest note on your instrument. And that sort of interlude passage was something I loved. Um, later, you know, in my teenage years, I started playing guitar you know, I was really interested in the music of Jimi Hendrix and sort of the timbre of the electric guitar. Um, so that was something that really fascinated me. I also, you know, I grew up in the era when we had, you know, personal tape recorders. And so my dad had like, had bought, he was doing his PhD at the same time I was growing up in my grade school. And so he bought like this really fancy state-of-the-art Yamaha tape recorder for interviews. And when he wasn't using it, I would covet it. And I would just go... And just make weird noises with it, and I would imagine like making music out of water. And I have, I have boxes of tapes that are full of me just making weird sounds as a kid. So I mean, it's very experimental in that sense. Also, when I started playing piano, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I started piano, I think, when I was in second or third grade. Um, and the first lesson that I had as a piano lesson was also included an assignment which I had absolutely no idea what to do about, which was to write a piece of music. It was to come come back the next week with a composition, and so I. It was of course extremely challenging, but something I really loved. And so I came back the next week. You know, I started working with, and we didn't do the compositions all the time, but I would do it regularly on my own outside of lessons. So, and I look back on this, and the things I would do were really kind of unusual. I think, and I think they they. You can see sort of continuums from what I was doing then to what I'm doing now. For instance, I was very interested in the idea of when I was like in fourth or fifth grade playing, just improvising and seeing if I could make a piece of music without a single third. Like, what, what does music sound like without triads? You know, because we learn theory and it's like, okay, well, what if I get rid of the things that they're teaching us in theory? Or what if I wrote a piece of music that's just repetitive patterns with three notes? I came into my teacher, I was really excited. Listen, I made this piece up. It's like 10 minutes long and it's only three notes. She's like, oh, you sound just like Philip Glass. <laughs> like, who's Philip Glass? <laughs> now I know it. I listened back to Philip Glass later and I was like, oh God, I was doing that. Um, so the, there's been a lot of that sort of throughout my life. And I, I was, I, I've had sort of this critical engagement with, you know, sound and various sort of techniques. And, you know, when I was studying piano later, you know, I, there's a lot of, my teacher regularly gave me, um, before my college years, she regularly gave me um, very contemporary pieces of music. So I was very much interested in things that really pushed the boundaries. Um, and when I would ever, every year we did a composition assignment in the, um, for a couple months in the, winter, I believe, if I remember correctly. And so that was for me was like the highlight of the year. So I was always like interested in preparing that composition when that came around, but I was doing it outside of that. So it was still something that I really much was interested in. And later when I became um, a student, you know, I became much more interested in the formalization and the history of it. And it just sort of, you know, blossomed from there. You're someone who educates students on how to use new technologies software, specifically Macs, MSP application, and hardware to build their virtual instruments and create sound. So how important is formal education in a learning software? You know, I'm, I'll be fairly broad and not necessarily talk about software or hardware here just because um, sometimes I think I'm a little biased because both my parents were actually educators. And so I've always grown up believing in the value of education. You know, in education, there's this Sometimes there's this debate between nurture and nature, and my parents were very much of the mind, and I very much myself am very much of the mind that it's 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 um, nurture more so than nature, at least with humans, that that makes a difference. Um, 
I also believe, you know, learning is one of the most important and rewarding things we have in our lives. So for me as a teacher, part of my goal is to sort of foster this love of learning and for what it's worth, eventually render myself useless so that students no longer need me. They can develop the critical skills to develop, you know, and understand the logic and the knowledge that they have, that they need to teach themselves. So I think this being said, with, with any subject, one does actually need a sort of help understanding the structures of knowledge or information so that one can reach the point where the formal education is necessarily necessary you know, in the future. Um, and I give a couple of few examples of this, just because I think examples are really, demonstrative, mm-hmm. demonstrative examples are really useful. Uh, one of which is, um, you know, for many years when I was, before I entered college, I was very much interested in studying jazz and jazz piano. I was a pianist. Um, I entered my undergraduate as, as a classical piano major um, and later a composition major as well. Um, but I was very much interested in jazz. And so I would read books. I would listen to things, you know, when I had my, my piano teachers, you know, um, God bless them, even though they weren't jazz pianists, would try to help me learn jazz things. But I never really made much progress. I, I was okay. I was in jazz band. I did well. But one one year, the last I think the last year that I was in high school, I was like, you know, I need to I need formal education. I need somebody who really knows jazz, has studied jazz piano and can help me with this. And I studied, I began studying uh, jazz piano that year. And I, within like a month, I became so much better than I ever was beforehand because I started to see these patterns and these structures that I just, I was blind to. Somebody who has had this skill and the time of studying pedagogy and understood the efficacy of what methods work it's just, it's invaluable to have that sort of experience in terms of formal education, especially when you're dealing with something that's very difficult and very complicated. Music technology is a field that trans, that crosses many disciplines, science, computer science, physics, music, um, art, you know, <laughs> sound studies, you know, in terms of the field of art. And so you really do need that sort of, that understanding of the structure to, to, develop these sort of, you know, rudiments that one's mind can use to, to develop your own skills and your own understanding of what it, music technology is. Um, so yeah, a long answer, but that, I think that's really, <laughs> I think that, I think it's, education is very important in general. Yeah. How old were you when you studied those just patterns? Oh, I think I was 17, 18. So okay. I started. Yeah. So it was it was before the time you discovered analog uh, or those digital field and software to use and to create your experimental music. Well, this was the late '90s, right? So you know, um, this was back when you would um, to edit a piece of audio. You would have on a computer. You would have to uh, you'd cut and paste, and you'd have to go like you know go to the bathroom and just like wait four or five minutes. So doing it on computers was not really, really useful. Um, I had studied guitar or I picked up a guitar. I was never, I've never been formally trained on guitar. And this is something I kind of regret. I probably should be because I'm a horrible guitarist, mm-hmm. uh, but I can play just basic country blues and various things, stuff that's not too complicated. Um, but, you know, I, I had a four track recorder. I had all these pedals, you know, so I was playing with various forms of music technology um, before I, before software was largely accessible, and largely available. So when it came to 
learning a lot of stuff in relationship to um, effects and things like that and multi-tracking, editing. I had a lot of fundamentals because I had had hands-on experience working with various sorts of really rudimentary technologies from the time I was, um, I want to say, 14 or 15, actually. Mm -hmm. So when we are talking about analog versus digital, it's been a massive transition from analog to digital over the last decades with the vast amounts of plugins that emulate those analog hardware. And you're now talking about uh, the 90s uh, where you had to wait t 10 to 15 minutes to proceed some sound or to, to copy and paste uh, some file. So can it be compared simply or is there any complex explanation for that process? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's re I think it's really difficult. Um, I'll just make a joke first because why not? Um, and this is something I sometimes say to students. It's a sort of metaphysical joke when you get down to it, honestly. At the lowest quantum level, the level of the quantum fabric, nothing is actually analog or continuous. Transitions are always discrete. You're always just going from one state to another state. I partially say this because I used to believe like, you know, oh, analog can never be deprecated in the computer. Um, and when I think about like the fundamentals of the structure of the universe, well, maybe it actually can. Um, but to be a little less opaque, I don't really think there's an answer to this. Um, it's not something I talk about or think much. I've thought so much about over the years or discussed as much in terms of a lot of the other subjects I talk about. I remember like, one of the best discussions I heard about this was a few years ago. I was listening to... Um, there's an interview on NPR with uh, Kevin Shields of My Bloody Valentine. And where it was a long interview, mostly talking about the differences between analog versus digital hardwares. And I think that his summary is probably one of the best summaries I've had, which or that I've heard over the years, which is specifically that digital audio technologies are designed to, as closely as possible, perfectly replicate a sound as is produced or recorded. Whereas analog studio techniques each impart a specific sonic colorization or color. So every analog piece of hardware you're going to use is going to impart a color. It's not to say that digital technologies don't do that, especially when you know we're looking at technologies from the 80s or 90s, like you know the, the original DX7, I think, had a 10-bit depth. So it, the fidelity of that is rather poor. Um, following this, I think it's really wrong to say one is better or worse, or that we've necessarily transitioned from one to the other. It's just they're different. What one prefers in one instance is a matter of taste. I'm, I'm not going to be, and I'm not going to say, um, there's another interview I saw once with Niles Klein, um, where he's saying, you know, I'm not a purist. And I'm not going to say I'm a purist analog, I'm a purist digital. They're just different. Mm. Um, this said, I, 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 the thing is, I really did grow up in the digital age. So I'm, I'm, I feel that I'm really quite aware of the clear advantages of digital technologies. For instance, just the ability to edit techno, edit and control audio in the digital realm is so vastly superior to so much of what is afforded in, in analog technologies. I mean, I mentioned previously the whole, you know, the fact that it used to take me five to 10 minutes for copying and pasting files. I mean, imagine what it was like when you had to pull out the ruler and slice magnetic tape. That's what it was like before computers were around, you know, and before computers came hand. And I think, you know, People who have worked with digital audio and developing digital audio have really been aware of this for a really long time. I mean, even if you go back to um, Max Matthews' original work in the Bell Labs in the late 50s and 1960s, um, and the development of programs such as the music series, Music 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, um, and some of the later software he did, um, which later became the basis for C-Sound, which is still in use um, in the 80s, which was originally developed in the 80s. Um, 
these innovations are really crucial to understand how music and audio has been made for decades. And I think any practitioner in music technology in any sort of form can really benefit from engaging with these sort of contemporary music APIs. API meaning advanced programming interface. Every field of technology has its own API. And music APIs, you know, they're commonly used these days, are Max, mm -hmm. <laughs> named after Max Matthews, of course. Uh, PD, you know, also developed by Miller Puckett, who developed originally developed Max um, MSP, now just called Max. Other ones like Super Collider, Chuck, there's a whole bunch, there's a whole handful of them. These are the probably the three most widely used, I think, these days. Beyond this, I think learning how to work with an API allows individuals to understand how music technologies in both the digital and the analog realm work from a fundamental level. You can see how we've how people have been developing from these technologies from a very long time. You know, all of a sudden, you know, talking, you know, sort of waxing philosophic about the benefits of digital. I think it's honestly, it is kind of hard to deny some of the value of analog. There, there's a character that analog technologies can imbue that's just really quite lovely. I mean, for instance, when I'm at home, you know, I I have thousands of CDs. I have I have usually over a thousand CDs, but I don't have a CD player. Hmm. And I listen to I mostly just listen to vinyl. It sounds better. Um, and you know, I have an electric guitar. I have multiple electric guitars, and I'm going to plug those into my tube amp way more than I'll ever plug them directly into my digital audio face in my computer. It's just uh, there's one particular thing. You know, it's like digital clipping. It's awful. Hmm. It's a horrible sound. But analog, the saturation when you push the edges in analog technologies, it's it's beautiful. There's just this wonderful sort of harmonic colorization. It's just, it's just um, it's hard to replicate. And I think there's something valuable about that that I think we can lose if we get become really sort of ideological and saying digital's better. You, you mentioned Max MSP and mm -hmm. how Max handles this battle between uh, analog and digital. I mean you're you were my professor and I have been mm -hmm. studied Max uh, for more than one year and I learned actually that Max can emulate and can allow uh, students to build all analog synthesizer if they of course know the algorithms. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a tricky thing. I mean, because I think, I mean, I'll speak just briefly about like, you know, analog technologies because I think there is an advantage to analog technologies in that um, I think there, there is there's something which we can lose sight of in computers, which is the design. You know, th there is there is this incredible user interface which has been conceived of. You know, when you've begun to understand how synthesizers work, and I think Max is a terrific pedagogical tool because I think Max and, and many any any other P API. I'm not, I, I generally I am software agnostic. I don't believe any software is necessarily any better than any other software. I think you know Max is good, PD is good. Super Collider is good. They're all music APIs, and you can learn very similar principles from them. I particularly teach Max just because the, the learning curve is not as steep as it is on a program like Super Collider, for instance, which is literally writing code, or a program like PD, which is not as well as developed and doesn't have nearly as many modular objects as a program like Max MSP does. And Max MSP is, is still to this day the most widely used um, audio and music API. So I think you know students, if they learn Max MSP, will have the ability to transition to many different sort of situations. But that said, when you work with something like Max, you can really understand how things were structured and built inside of inside of analog APIs. Um, you understand like sort of the, the things that people were interested in because there is this direct lineage from the original APIs of the, of the late 1950s, late 1960s until today. And the interests that people were working on in the digital realm, the interests that people work on in the analog realm in terms of 
user interface in terms of sonic exploration were very much the same. People were working, you know, in tandem, but in different realms. So I think, you know, an API is really useful for helping students sort of understand how an analog works, as well as understanding just what has gone into developing the digital technologies we have today. And then also, you know, and I'll, I'll probably talk about this some later, like how we can sort of free ourselves to do what we want to creatively with technology. That, that is my next question. How do you see the relationship between technology and creativity? And how do they uh, rely on or help each other? Yeah. As, as, as a composer and artist, I really greatly value technology. But this said, I think it's something we need to be really careful with and engage with very critically. Um, a lot of people just broadly fall into sort of this religion of technology. And there's a lot of uh, pitfalls with usage of technology. I think we need to really be mindful of when we use technology, what we're actually doing and what we're engaging with. Um, so to sort of preface this, and I have a whole sort of spiel, which I've given many times, uh, to sort of preface this, I, you know, I'm going to paraphrase something Marshall McLuhan has often talked about, mm -hmm. which is basically, you know, some people want to talk about technology. They say, oh, technology is a tool. You know, and Marshall McLuhan's response says that anybody who says technology is a tool is a fool. Technology is not a tool. Technology is an environment. You know, and I think the way that, that I've long thought that, um, you know, to get to my point in a moment, for me as an artist, for one to be creative, like the key is freedom. We, the artist needs to be as free as absolutely possible. You know, freedom is in art, you're able to do whatever you want, you know, and that's something we really need to treasure and value and support as much as possible. And I think really some of the dangers of music technologies is that they can be incredibly limiting in what they allow or push or make easier for someone to do. You know, so a good example of this, for instance, is um, music notation software. You know, many people use music notation software to, you know, Okay, on one hand, the environment of music notation software, it's so much faster and so much easier to use than writing music with a pen and pencil. Mm -hmm. This said, you know, when you use music notation software, there are very specific limitations and constraints on what it allows the user to do and what it allows the user to do easily and quickly. And if you're not aware of what these constraints are, you can start writing music, which is the result of the constraints of the music notation software. And honestly, I mean, if, if you think about this sort of like awareness of what are the boxes that technology puts us in, any piece of developed technology puts us in, there always are limits. There are always things that we, if we're not aware of, if we're not critical of what the technology is presenting us with as an environment, we don't push against these. And we don't necessarily, we're not free as artists. We're not truly doing what we could do, you know, and really exploring art and really exploring things, really getting to the heart of it, you know, trying to do something really interesting, something spiritual, something deep, something that touches the humans. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, you know, the more technologies I've used over the years and music technologies, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm always amazed how frequently I listen to music or I see an artwork and I'm like, medicine, <laughs> that, that piece is a medicine feat. That is a piece constrained by that piece of software. That is a piece constrained by that plugin. That is a piece constrained by this. I mean, it's, it's so obvious to me a lot of times when I hear a lot of music. And I think we really need to be mindful of this. We really need to be aware that Technology is an environment, and it provides us with, you know, various limitations and constraints that we need to be aware that they're limiting us as artists and freedoms. Uh, this said, you know, there's another, I think, another angle to music being technology being an environment, which is that it can provide a whole sort of novel perspectives by which to view the world. 
you know, I'll talk probably about more examples about this later and talk about my own music. But, you know, um, for one thing, you know, it can provide us with insights with ways to view acoustics or space. You know, it provides us with, it can provide us with quantitative measurements, you know, that we don't have. Like, for instance, I obsessively study waveforms, trying to understand what I'm hearing is relationship to the quantitative measurement of volume. You know, I obsessively look at, you know, spectrograms. I'm trying, and I'm using this to try to help myself understand the world better. And there's so many things that you can use technology to sort of interact with and create, you know, sort of experiences or sort of experiments that allow us to have this sort of environment to explore and get deeper and to be more free, you know, and to, to really move beyond the constraints of what the design was built into the software that was distributed. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the importance of studying sound, perception, cognition, etc., and how does that knowledge help one create and recreate new experimental works? Uh, it's not right to read about critical listening, so maybe you can give me your opinion on uh, the critical listening concept. I mean, I'll talk more about the. There's, I think you know, there's sort of two questions here, and maybe I'll address some of the first one first, and then maybe sure. we'll see if I can get to the second one. Maybe the second one is <laughs> sort of implicit in what I speak about the first one. So I think, you know, an analogy I've often made over the years, and, and, and you know, it's I've made it so many times at the point at this point that it almost begins to feel contrite, um, is that if you look at the history of Western classical music, it has been an expansion of resources. Um, initially, it was largely constrained by the voice, and these instruments, which had very limited tessiaturas. Later, those tessiaturas expanded, the dynamic range expanded. You know, for instance, you think about the time of Bach, you know, we had harps and chords, um, and, you know, and very sort of simple, you know, um, viola instruments. Mm -hmm. um, later, you know, the range of the orchestra increased, the piano increased through the age of, Be through Beethoven's life, you know. And so there's been this sort of continuous, you know, if you look at it from a larger perspective in terms of Western music, there's been this sort of continuous expansion of dynamics, timbre, register, tessiatura, you know, and orchestration possibilities. And really the thing that's really blew this all open was when electronics technology, recording technologies came into existence. Mm -hmm. Now everything is possible. You know, everything, almost everything you can imagine, everything you want is possible. It's interesting to me a lot of times thinking about like, you know, what people do with technology that in essence, a lot of the theories and a lot of the basics of what people are doing with technology were developed and codified in, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it's really just sort of the thing that we have now is we have the control, you know, we, and we have sort of information theory and, and sort of the ability to do things with computers that people were just dreaming of back then. This said, I think, you know, um, when we're given this sort of like, it's like Spider-Man with great response, with great, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> when we have the capacity, you know, I'm not a comic book person, but forgive me. It's a, it's a, it's a good popular analogy. I think a lot of people get, um, sure. when you can do anything, you know, you have to think about well, what are you going to do and what, how's it going to be perceived and how it's going to be, um, dealt with. So I think one thing partially is kind of an, gosh, and at a very basic level, I think sometimes, we need to consider just sort of simple, for lack of a better word, ethical considerations of sound um, that we create with technology. And, and this is where, you know, studying sound perception and cognition is really useful. So for instance, um, you know, there for many years, since World War II and 
since it's been developed, you know, they're, they're what's referred to as the Fletcher-Munson curves, which are now referred to as the loud, equal loudness curves. So basically, you know, the uh, United States government took a bunch of soldiers during World War II and they subjected them to various sine wave frequencies at various amplitudes and asked them to say, how loud do you think it is? <laughs> you know, and so now what we know from this is that we don't hear every frequency the same. You know, certain frequencies we hear louder than certain other frequencies. Um, you know, instruments, acoustic instruments, which are have been dominant for the vast majority of humankind, um, they have been developed, you know, to be sensitive to how we hear frequencies and how we hear sound. Electronic instruments have not. So, you know, there is a large amount of electronic music which has no consideration about how, like, we hear frequencies from, like, you know, 2,000 to 4,000 hertz, way louder than we hear frequencies, you know, from... Um, about 1,000 to 2,000, or how like, you know, 10,000 hertz is really loud, even if it's the same volume as a 100 hertz tone. It's, we're going to hear that sounding way louder. I remember, be slightly polemical here, I remember here going to an a computer music conference in, in uh, Seoul um, a number of years ago, and I'm not going to name names here just because I won't bother, but this, it's indicative of a lot of electronic music that I've heard and a lot of works I've heard with that, you know, take advantage of technology, but don't necessarily consider this sort of basic perception of sound where it was a piece that was based upon feedback patterns of like i think the guy like hit a bell a couple times and it creates some feedback patterns and it was just this looping feedback pattern and it was 20 minutes of extremely loud extremely high frequencies and it was so so painful and you know that you can lose your hearing listening to that sort of thing. You can really, really damage your hearing. You can lose the high ends of your frequencies. And when you lose the high ends of your frequencies, when you lose those high frequencies, they're gone forever. Mm -hmm. You know, they're gone. You don't get them back. I mean, sound is radiation. You know, it's like when somebody goes into a nuclear power plant, they have this measurement of how much radiation they're receiving. Mm -hmm. Sound is just like that. You can only receive so much loud sounds before you don't have the ability to hear these loud sounds. And I remember listening to some people sitting in front of me and they said, you know, when they say 10,000 hertz, 10,000 hertz hurts. <laughs> there was a lot of 10,000 hertz hurts thinking. So I think, you know, that's something that's very, we need to be mindful of just from a purely, I think, for lack of a better word, ethical perspective in terms of making electronic music. We need to be aware of what, what, what are we doing to our ears with some of these sounds. But beyond that, I think, you know, this opens up a whole world of exploration. You know, James Tenney, I think, was really kind of, he worked at the Bell Labs in, in the 1960s. And I think he was really, sort of a um, pioneer in this. He, he Amazing. He wrote his master's thesis in the late 1950s at the University of, I believe, Illinois, which was largely this combination of applying gestalt theory, of which was largely based at that time on solely on perception of the visual field, because our visual cortex is dominant. Um, most of our neurons in our brain are dedicated to the visual cortex. Um, he was applying the principles of what we understood about, what was understood about um, Gestalt's psychology in terms of analysis and in, in the perception and in, in terms of visual field to music and the auditory field. And, and his whole thesis was based on like, well, what are the salient properties of what determines what what carries form, you know, what carries our perception and cognition of what is meaningful and carries music. You know, and when he went to the Bell Labs later, he took these ideas that he had studied and he applied them to music that he could make with technology. So, you know, like well, how can I, you know, take these sort of ideas of gestalt principles of sound to structure a material that's like no other material we've ever heard? 
how can I make that like musically sensical? How can I make that something that's like pushes the realms of what can be understood about our relationships, structuring of sound, where music is not necessarily something that is constrained to acoustic instruments more, but now constrained to nothing, constrained to everything that's at our fingertips. So I can give a lot more examples, but these I think are two sort of concrete examples, just, you know, in terms of like awareness of what is the sensation of sound, you know, in the acoustic versus, you know, the electronic realm where we can do anything versus, you know, um, what do we know about sound and what can we study about the way you understand sound and form and structure and how can we then use that to inform what we might do when we create music when anything is possible? Thank you for explaining the Fletcher-Manson curve and the relation between loudness and the frequency range. And in terms of uh, higher frequency notes, I want to add that I have a hardship listening to those highest notes on violin. So when a violin player plays all those high notes uh, reaching all <laughs> harmonics yeah. all the way up, I have a pain and it, oh, that's yeah. something that is not, definitely that's not pleasing to my ears. However, when I listen to some other instruments like trumpet, for example, and when they produce those flageolets, uh, it doesn't bother me uh, so much. So there is not a big pain that I feel when I listen uh, to a violin. And I want to say that the timbre is definitely uh, the element, the parameter that plays a big role, an important role in our uh, listening perception. It's something the same when you hear uh, some squeaky sound, uh, when someone opens the door or when someone moves the chair. Oh, it's yeah. Also something that uh, similar to the violin that I mentioned. You know, actually, here's something that's actually very interesting. You might not know this, but you know, a lot of times people talk about the limits of human hearing. They, and they say that typically, excuse me, human hearing's limit is 20,000 hertz. Mm -hmm. That's why we have a 44 1 uh, kilohertz as the basic standard for, for audio recordings. Um, the honestly, actually, we can hear all the way up to about 100 kilohertz. We can hear way higher. But the thing is, we don't hear those really high frequencies like consciously the way we hear them. Um, we hear them often haptically. So for instance, as a simple thought experiment, just to sort of bring back an experience I'm sure you've had, um, nails on a chalkboard. Mm -hmm. Styrofoam, somebody taking a piece of styrofoam and cracking it in half that produces frequencies which are way beyond 20,000 hertz. We don't hear that in our ears. What we hear that is, and we hear it in our skin. We hear that in our body. Our body is sensitive to these vibrations. We don't necessarily hear them. And that's the thing, like a lot of, a lot of them, you know, analog, things in the analog realm, they don't have, they're not constrained by the Nyquist frequency, you know, so they, they, they get really high into that register. Mm. Um, and same thing, you know, sometimes with, you know, analog synthesizers, you know, if they're not being sampled, um, you know, they, they go, a square a square wave goes way 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 up. You know, it can cause that same sort of sensation to you. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's part of that might be something to do with that. Yeah, of course, it's incredible how many aspects of sounds uh, we can approach too. And I can make an analogy. Uh, I remember when Robert Bob Wilson came to Serbia to give a lecture. Uh, on his uh, experimentation with the sound. Uh, Bob Wilson, one of the uh, greatest 
uh, playwriters uh, and theater directors and also theoreticians. Uh, he started a lecture with an image on the screen with a boy who was deaf and he explained how he learned uh, to perceive sound or sound vibrations uh, over the ground. So he, was, he would play uh, the sound behind him and after years, uh, the boy became a dancer so he could dance because he felt uh, the vibrations that uh, traveled over the ground. Oh, yeah. And also, uh, if you look at the zoo musicology, uh, it teaches us uh, that there are a lot of animals, uh, a lot of uh, sea animals like whales yeah. that can perceive and transmit uh, high-pitched tones uh, like whales can produce the sound that is 20k hertz yeah, exactly. or even more. And that's how they uh, communicate to each other. What also actually a lot of whale songs, if I remember, are actually subsonic. They're below what we can hear. They're below what we hear. Just like bats. Bats mm -hmm. actually have supersonics. Bats actually sing songs. But their songs are like above human hearing range. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a really, um, I often think about this. There, there's, there's a... Um, there's a great Zen um, sort of uh, parable, which I, I, which sometimes I, I think about this in relationship to this, you know, because this this sort of discussion about you know deaf people actually hearing or blind people actually seeing, which is there's a lot of cognitive, there's a lot of scientists which effort supports this nowadays. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more to it than these sort of boxes that we put on things. So, so uh, about something about the critical listening from the listener's perspective, what knowledge listeners can get before jumping in the experimental music. You know, I think I think the, I think the work should reveal itself optimally. I think that the experiments, you know, I, I, a number of you know composers I know who are experimental, and Cage talks about this as well in his um, famous essay um, or lecture, experimental music, which he presented I think in 1957. I don't have my books <laughs> in Taiwan. Um, you know that you know he used to think that you know the term experimental music was one which he derided, but I think. The thing that's which inter more interesting about experimental music is that people who make experimental music have gone most of the time have gone through the experiments themselves, you know, and they've they've listened like what what can I discover from this? What what is what is the thing that I can hear that's new? What what is revelatory? What is something that is different and interesting? And then once they found an efficacious way of meaning of presenting this, and I think this is the case with experimental works, which are effective, I think, you know, effective or efficacious in, in their presentation. The, the experiment that, that the artist went through, the, the thing, the experiential situation that was trying to be presented or discovered should have been refined to the point that I think the listener should be able to understand it rather simply. So, you know, Alvin Lucier's I'm Sitting in a Room is a great example of this. For instance, you know, he says, listen, I'm sitting in a room and I'm going to record the sound of my voice over and over again. And I'm just going to keep doing this process over and over again until you don't hear my voice. And all you hear is the sound of the resonant frequencies of the room, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the only thing that might remain is like, you know, r r r r r rhythm because he has... Stuttering. He has a stutter, yeah. You know, and then, and then the process reveals itself. You know, you don't need to know any more than that. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like minimal art, right? You know, a lot of times people talk about minimal art, um, you know, and minimal music came out of a minimal art minimal art was you know came first and a lot of the minimal 
minimal music, for lack of a better word. Many, many, many people resist this word. Um, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, sure. There's a time element to it, right? So, you know, the idea being when you see a work of, you see a minimal work, you know, the structure is immediately, it can be apparent to you rather quickly. Then it becomes experiential. You've, you've experienced what the structure of the work is. Now, what is your relationship between the engagement of it? Your experience the experiments is now part of the work. The time has become a component of it. You know, in, in a lot of experimental music, for lack of a better word, or minimalist music, the process or what actually is happening, ideally, I think, should be clear. You should have an idea what's going on. You know, sometimes you maybe need to say a sentence or two, a, a brief program note. Or, in my opinion, optimally, the title should be enough. Mm -hmm. um, um, that should be enough to just like say, okay, something's going on here. I kind of get an idea what it is. Okay, now I can just experience what it is, you know. And I think for me, critical listening is weird. It's 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 a strip. It's it's there. There are many ways to listen. You know, there's many 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 ways to listen. And I think there are many different modalities of listening, and um, each one of them provides their own thing. And I'm, I'm not going to get into like Michel Chion's theories or something right here, but I think you know that there are many different ways of listening. I think one thing that's fascinating about experimental listening and experimental music is that it, it provides us with new modalities and new ways of trying to understand the world through sound mm -hmm. and, and the combination of sound and time because sound is bound by time. This is a great moment that we can make the transition to your uh, sound laboratory and your experiments and to see how you experimented with uh, sound. Sure. There are a lot of, lot of works. Listeners can find your name everywhere. I mean, from YouTube to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Let's start with the work across an ocean, across the land from 2011. I read the, the article on that piece. Let me first ask you, how many times was this piece performed live? Gosh, you know, it's, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky question because it exists in multiple forms at this point in time. And this is something I do a lot as an artist is, or composer, I don't, let's just say artist sometimes. <laughs> I don't know whether I think of myself as an artist as a composer. Probably artist more so. I just tend to work with sound and technology uh, most of the time. Um, it exists in many different formats because I think a lot of times I, I develop a work and I put so much effort into this that I, you know, I want to try to find different ramifications of it. And a lot of times my works exist in series and in relationships. I can talk about this some more later because it has a lot to do with the, the structure and the algorithms, mm -hmm. the technologies and the work. But, um, you know, I think uh, without with and without video um, and as part of a laptop ensemble, this piece does exist, it has a version with as part of a laptop ensemble. Um, it's been done between with performers, between one and four different performers at least half a dozen times, I think, at this point in time. There's also later... There was originally no video to the work. Um, later, my my uh, my colleague Yasha Kolzinski uh, added a video component, and um, multiple versions of it with the video have been played at various um, international conferences um, in Europe, in Mexico, and in the United States. Um, there's a version of it which is the full, large, across an ocean, across the land, which is about 30 minutes. And then because conferences and festivals often want pieces that are less than 10 or 15 minutes. Um, I, I found that the first 10 minutes of this piece is actually rather effective on its own. Uh, so I've honestly submitted to quite a few conferences the, the original 10 minutes as a separate piece, which I call Across the Land. Mm -hmm. um, beyond this, I've also collaborated with a um, regularly with a Cambodian choreographer and dancer, uh, Che Chang Ketia. Um, and she's used this work or parts of this work 
um, in multiple different uh, pieces for dance, for solo, and from everywhere from solo to um, ensemble, I believe at least seven or eight dancers uh, that have been presented in, in Japan, Singapore, and the largest uh, realizations was a work called that she she called Departure was presented in Phnom Penh at least I want to say three times. So um, it's been done quite a few times. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been done as often recently, but um, it has been presented publicly in concert or various sort of settings in many different situations. Well, let's introduce uh, uh, the listeners with this piece. So you used uh, some short recordings of a pair of some Tibetan prayer symbols, right? They're called Tingshua. Yeah. And it was some giant uh, microphone tam-tam, right? Yeah, there's actually, there, there's um, four sound sources mm -hmm. in this piece. Um, so two of, one of them is, is a Tingsha, which is, it's, it's a Tibetan prayer symbol. It's two, two um, out metal alloys, I think mostly silver, which you strike together. Um, you know, they're also sort of known as antique symbols. More recently in modern manufacturing, you might be familiar with them as, I think, kotales. Um, but, you know, previously they were used very specifically for ritualistic purposes in Tibet. Um, in addition to that, there are two, um, I have two Tibetan singing bowls that I recorded. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, which uh, has the world's largest gem and mineral show every year. Um, the world's largest gathering of dealers in gem and minerals comes to Tucson every year for about three weeks. And we have, we have friends and we've been able to gather dealership things. So we'd often just go to hotels and see all the dealers. And so for many years, um, there were multiple dealers who would bring ancient artifacts from Tibet. And I remember just going through boxes of these ancient brass Tibetan singing bowls, which are lovely. You know, you hit them and then you can like bring the edges with them. I've been obsessed with these things for want to say 27 years now <laughs> um and part of that a lot of that and part of the interest of that comes from there there's this there's this um i have a really strong interest in in eastern philosophy and, and buddhism and there's this wonderful um tibetan prayer what's often or prayer might be a good way to translate it, which referred to as a goth and i'm just going to paraphrase it. it's only like a four lines but the basic idea is that if if only everybody could realize that every sound in the world could be sustained infinitely you know, that within every moment and of every sound, there's an infinite suspension, then, you know, everybody could reach pure and enlightenment. <laughs> so the wonderful thing about these bowls is you can, you can sustain that sound. So I've been obsessed with it for you forever. So those three sounds are, I've used them in so many pieces, and they comprise a large portion of this. Basically one recording of me hitting the ding shot, I think like three or four of me just banging the other two Tibetan singing bowls. Uh, and then the other one, there are a number of series of recordings of the... It's often referred to as the microphony tam tam. It's just shy of two meters in in um, diameter. Uh, famously used by uh, Karlheinz Stockhausen for his pieces microphony one and mm -hmm. two. I think also with mixture and other pieces. Um, and when I was at the University of California San Diego doing my doctorate, uh, they actually purchased one. They actually purchased this tam tam for like you know fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> Who knows mm -hmm. how much it's worth? It's worth a lot. Uh, so I actually spent one entire um I have I was friends with a lot of percussionists and I actually spent an entire um afternoon placing microphones just like two or three inches from the Tam Tam and sitting with one of my percussionist friends while he was in this recording studio and I was in the sound booth saying, okay, hit it this way. <laughs> So I have like six hours of like all these like really close microphones doing all sorts of crazy things on this tam tam. So yeah, um, just those basic simple attacks of, of the Tibetan instruments and then like these various sorts of things we explored that I 
honestly really chose rather quickly uh, from this extensive six-hour recording session that I mm -hmm. haven't mined <laughs> to the, its full potential yet. The samples in this piece, the way they change, the way I manipulate them is rather simple. Um, besides various changes in dynamics, basically I change their pitches by changing their speed. So I don't, I don't do, I don't use uh, phase vocoders or anything like that. It's just like it's classic old school tape technology where if I want something to be an octave lower, I slow it down half. So, um, or if I want it to be two octaves lower, I slow it down, you know, by a quarter. So it's really, it's really, it's really pretty, to some extent, primitive in what it is. But I, I really like these kind of constraints. Um, so. And I, to some extent, I'm probably jumping the gun because you were going to talk about spectral analysis. But um, I find for my ears when I was creating this piece, and generally when I do this kind of approach, um, I find that slowing down sounds sounds better than speeding up sounds. And you just you, you can get into the sound more when you stretch it out. You can really kind of hear it much more. It's like, I think, you know, an analogy would be sort of the visual works, the visual experimental cinema of Maya Duran. You know, Maya Duran was very fond of slowing down cinema, you know, slowing down films, you know, her films are full of slow film, of slower motion mm -hmm. to allow you to really see the motion, you know. Or another example, you know, to speak of, of audio, you know, um, you know, the classic work by Brian Eno, um, Music for Airports, you know, which is, yeah, largely just loops, you know, asynchronous loops. But one of the small and subtle things that, you know, often gets, I think, neglected when people talk about that piece is he slowed down the recordings just a bit. So you can hear just a little bit more of the texture. So, um, that was something I found really fascinating was just like taking these recordings, um, which are extremely rich, and then just what happens when I slow them down to very, 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 very slow. Um, there's some fascinating things that, yeah, there's some fascinating things. I found, sorry, I just drug. I, I found that some of the sounds on the tam-tam, for instance, some of the um, frictive sounds, not percussive sounds, frictive sounds, which are made with like bows or various things that my percussionist wouldn't tell me what he was doing. I have hints, I have ideas. But when I slowed them down, they started to actually sound like humans. They started to have like, you know, sort of utterances. And there's something also just, you know, I think it's hard to deny the vibratory quality of acoustic sound, of electronic sound, the, the, the force of a low frequency at a high volume. It, it's physical, you know, it's, it's, it really, it, it's really, it, it's embodied sound, you know. And I think there's something that's really important and valuable about that, which is um, often overlooked. And the speaker should be placed around the audience, like and mm -hmm. near the four corners of the performer space. Explain to me the effect the audience can feel with that quadraphonic or right quadraphonic loudspeaker setup. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm very much fascinated by its surround sound. Um, I think most of my works um, have a surround sound component to them. Um, typically, I'm very practical about things. I'm very I'm not so dogmatic. I mean, like if I if there's only stereo, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not going to say, "Hey, you at home, you only have headphones, you can't listen to my music because it's surround sound." You know, no, uh, there, there, I try to find ways around that. Um, but I think that, like with surround sound, I, it's something that there's something almost primal to the listening of surround sound that I think is really absolutely fascinating that I try to explore in a lot of my works. Um, give you an early example. of This was one of my earliest examples. I mean, I. I did write a piece for surround sound when I was an undergrad just because I was like, I wanted to expand the range of the piano. And I was doing a piece for piano electronics. So I, I wrote a piece in surround sound for piano electronics, which uh, the school I was at, it had been the first time somebody had done surround sound. But I was just like, yeah, I want to expand piano in all its ways. And this, this electronics is a way to do that. 
But I remember like when I really started to get serious, I, did, I, I, you know, I did all the programming and then they, they, they masked the tape and then I, I only heard it in concerts. I didn't really actually get to work with it and study. It was just all conjectural. Um, but I remember when I did my master's at McGill, um, when we were first looking at various sorts of um, techniques for surround sound, the teacher, I, um, my teacher at the time, uh, Sean Ferguson, um, he, his demo was to, to take a, the sound of a dog growling Mm. And we were inside the surround sound space of six speakers and then move the virtual location of it, the dog growling around us, you know, and when it's in front of you, it's kind of like, okay. But then when it gets behind you, it's like, <laughs> fight or flight, you know, it's, it's something primal happens when, when there's a sound behind you. We're very, our ears are very, very, this gets back to the whole spurs of perception cognition thing. If we're not aware of this, of the ramifications of this, you know, you can't really take advantage of this when you create with these sort of tools. Our ears are very, very, very sensitive to about 120 degrees of the central focus. We have incredible resolution for that. Beyond that, our resolution is really bad, you know. And so I think you know that this is just demonstrative of the fact that you know when we, something's behind here, we can't really tell where it is. So we had just we we resort to sort of like, is it scary, you know, <laughs> or, or is it okay, you know? And I think that that's something that surround sound allows for us, you know, because we are used to hearing environments which are all around us. And for some reason or another, in Western classical music, we've gotten into the pattern of just hearing music right in front of us, you know, straight in front, you know, vocally. So I think bringing back that experience of listening is really important to me in, in terms of using surround sound. Um, purely practical perspective, it's in four channels just because it's the easiest one to set up. Mm. Uh, I moved to Miami when I wrote, I, was, I just moved to Miami when, when I wrote this piece, and um, I was doing a lot of performances off outside the university um before then the university of california san diego and uh, mcgill where i did my master's or my doctorate and master's respectively um we had really good setups where we could do six eight you know and up to 32 channel speaker setups or no 64 channel speaker mm -hmm. setups you know anything was possible right so you know you could really get into resolution and things like this and try to really get into this physics and the engineering of of of, of surround sound but when i came to miami it's like you know we're going to do this in an art galley in Wynwood, you know, and I got to schlep these speakers myself <laughs> in a borrowed car. So I was like, okay, let's just do it in quad. You know, quad gets me that resolution I usually do to do surround sound. So that's why it's in quad. Hearing my music in surround sound is a, is a vastly different experience from hearing stereo. I do as best I can to make it practical in headphones, but you do lose something. I really believe you lose something when you hear it in a stereo. There, there's also some diffusion algorithms that are at play, and they deal a lot with the algorithms that are in relationship to the um, frequency, the frequencies of the work, um, or the sort of frequency transformations that I do on the samples in the work. It's basically, there, there's, there's some algorithms which are correlative to the algorithms of the frequency change, in which are basically, I, I attempt to do something very similar in the surround sound realm to um, a, a shepherd tone, statistical shepherd tone that I do within the... Uh, frequency realm as well so okay um and and, and it's something it works it works so much better and there's also just this sort of like brownian cloud thing where i'm trying to transform algorithms of of cloud motion into some of the samples that move um that it's just you know it works really it sounds really nice in surround sound <laughs> so. so you're talking about the shepherd tone in this piece yeah there there's there's something that i i've been yeah i have this sort of, i've i played with sort of an, things that are inspired by or analogous to this shepherd tone uh, in a number of my works, this, which is this very sort of interesting oral illusion um, that was discovered by, it's, it's debated who discovered it. It's attributed largely to Roger Shepard, who the uh, mm -hmm. famous experimental psychologist who worked at the Bell Labs, notably in the 60s. Um, but 
there are rumors that it was actually invented by Jean-Claude Rizier or uh, possibly Jim Tenney, actually. Let's speak about spectral analysis <clears throat> you yeah. did before composing the piece. Uh, it seems like a different approach than we may find in Gerard Griset analysis of all instruments in his, let's say, partials, isn't it? It's different approach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the piece, the piece partials. Yeah, the piece partial is like the first few minutes of partial, and uh, the piece which uh, precedes it in the uh, Espace Acoustique, which is Griset's large two-hour uh, exploration of. Uh, acoustic sound through various forms of um, instruments and combinations of instruments. Um, oh, what's the piece? Periods of the piece that came before it. Periods ends with the, the with the ensemble presenting a performance of the analysis of a low E on a bass trombone, and then the first few minutes of partial also take advantage of this. Um, this is what's referred to. The technique is often referred to as instrumental synthesis. The idea being that you you when you analyze a sound spectrally, sound is made up you know of various frequencies, sine waves, with various different amplitudes, and different um, phase. So the idea then in instrumental synthesis is to take these simple sinusoidal components and instead apply them to instruments. So you create this sort of um, hallucinogenic thing, which is neither quite timbre. Not quite harmony either. Um, my my friend Ken Ueno, who's a terrific composer as well, um, often likens this technique to bunt cake. You know, uh, where, I don't know if you know bunt cake. It's like you know, it's like this cake which has the shape, and then you throw in the goo. You know, and like you know, the the, the shape of the bunt cake is the spectral analysis. And instead of throwing in sine waves, which are like you know, water or ice, you throw in like fruitcake batter. Mm -hmm. my, my grandmother made the greatest fruitcake. Fruitcake gets a get bad rap in America. <laughs> but, you know, you throw in something which is more interesting. So it has some characteristics of that original thing. So it doesn't quite resemble harmony, but it doesn't quite resemble timbre either. It's something much more complicated. Um, I mean, Grise has used a lot of techniques, you know, later in his life. Fourth piece in L'Espace Acoustique uh, deals a lot with distortion synthesis, so transcriptions of ring modulation, uh, frequency modulation. Uh, transitoire, the last one of the last pieces in the cycle, deals with transcriptions of uh, transitoire in French. Um, the sort of the noisy components that happen after you hit like a, a percussive instrument. Um, you know, later he dealt with the um, harmonic series specifically, and then later he became in pieces such as uh, Talea. Later he became rather disillusioned even with that, and, and started moving with sort of just compressed and contracted. Harmonic series and the harmonic series itself, just to create this vast res reservoir of material which you could draw from. And I think you know, you compare this with works like Mirai. Mirai's done extensive use of uh, of the instrumental synthesis, uh, as well as you know, um, in a piece like uh, Gondwana mm -hmm. using uh, transcriptions of FM synthesis. Uh, Lamont Young, you know, has been obsessed with very intricate usages of the harmonic series, mm -hmm. largely inspired by studies of classical Indian music. You know, he, his guru lived upstairs for, I believe, almost 40 years. And classical Indian music makes extensive usage of the harmonic series. It goes, and this goes back to the sort of the mysticism of Pythagoras in terms of the relationship between ratio, number, and sound. Your Alvin Lucier, you know, who deals with sort of the revelation of sound and acoustics. Um, and various sort of pieces or, or vibratory patterns in terms of works like um, still moving lines and families of hyperbolas. But all this said, I think, you know, in terms of spectral works, the, the, the thing that's really sort of a strain which continues throughout all these, you know, outside of just 
these techniques, which are just, you know, they're techniques, um, is this concern with using an emphasis on frequency, frequency itself, rather than this abstract notion of pitch, you know, you know, which is often decorrelated from timbre, you know, in terms of a lot of music, which I think is honestly a horrific mistake that many composers of the mid 20th century and later up until now. This emphasis on frequency is a is a interesting and crucial thing to consider in terms of structuring a work. So there's a long way to get to the answer what I'm dealing with in terms of analysis in this piece. But so in this piece, basically, I I I did a basic spectral analysis of my Tibetan bells, of the the, the big bell, the big bowl, the small bowl, and the dingsha. And it's classic instrumental synthesis to some extent, except I'm using these samples. So the what I did is I took the, the loudest frequency and I treated that as the quote unquote fundamental of each of those. Um, the Ding Sha has a very clear E. It's it's pitched E. Anybody will assume it's an E. All the other the, the two bells you would disagree with. Um, but I treat that as the fundamental and I make the fundamental oh god, what do I do? <laughs> I, I I I just I, I set that into this, I, I I use that as a way to create the ratios by which I transpose to fit the bell. So the bell is transposed to the relation to, to the various interval frequential relationships of the bell itself. So it's like listening to the bell of the bell. The, the Ding Sha is, is transposed to the various frequential relationships of the analysis of the bells. I have various ways I combination all these, I combine all these analysis. And I think, and this does not consider the fact that every frequency in a sound is quieter or louder. It I treat them equally. And I often think about this in terms of like um, a visual correlative, which is like saturation. You know, when you take a photo and you and you saturate it, so every color is just that much more vibrant. Sure. You know, so so it's like in a way of like sort of like you know, it's the bell of the bell, except like super saturated bell of bell. You know, tell me something about the formal attributes and algorithmic processes you used in this piece. There, there is a set of algorithms which I've used in many of my pieces, which uh, this piece explores in a particularly in a very particular manner. I've often referred to it as the cloud algorithm. And the cloud algorithm, I can explain it rather briefly. So I'll explain, for instance, rhythm. Rhythm is a component. So one of, one of the aspects is rhythm. So in the cloud algorithm, notes occur at a rather regular interval in relationship to each other. And then they have little pauses in between them in order to create the perception of musical phrases. And this is designed to sort of resemble linguistics and the way we communicate in language. For instance, I am speaking to you a set of words at a rather steady tempo, and then when I'm ready to pause that tempo and say that this is the end of the sentence, I pause. And then I continue speaking at that tempo. Mm. A smaller break emphasizes a comma. A larger break emphasizes that I am concluded and that there is a sentence completion. It's a very linguistic analysis mm -hmm. for the sort of gesture, for the gestalt um, idea of proximity. When things are proximate, we, we, we group them into phrases. We group them into units. So the rhythm is set up in this way. There's this basic rhythm, which is established. You can speed it up or slow it down. Um, there's a slight jitter, so slight randomness to it, because you know if I make it too normal, it's going to sound like a machine, and I don't want things to sound too much like machines. I'm trying to imitate nature here. Um, and then, you know, there's this probability of interruption. Right. So you, it will create it'll create phrases. You know, it, mm. the algorithm is designed to very simply and very rudimentarily imitate the linguistic patterns of language and the way in which we parse information at the most rudimentary level. So that's the rhythm. Um, the There's a simple dynamic, which is basically, you know, it's a range of dynamics. 
and there's a random little jittering of it. And I can make the range wider or lower. It's just because it's dynamics. I'm just going to, I just kind of want, as things get louder, they get faster, you know, so mm. they correlate, you know, so they're coupled. So you can sort of, there's a very clear connection between them. So you don't necessarily hear this decoupling, which allows for a decorrelation of the information. We can only process so much information at a time. Beyond this, there is um, sort of a registral constraint. So the idea is this register can be everywhere from one note to this, the entire tessitura of interval ratios, which are afforded by the, by the analysis, or analyses, which I did. Um, so I specify the range in which these sounds occur. Within that, each sample, and this is this is where the cloud component comes into play, each sample is either randomly chosen from within that register, or it is the succeeding lower sound. The idea being, this is like kind of like barometric pressure and clouds. This is a really rough, dirty algorithm. <laughs> it's, very, it's kind of stupid simple. It's like, you know, between each note, it's like either randomly choose or 50% of the time choose a little bit lower, you know? And when it's getting, when the barometric pressure is, um, why, I don't, I don't know, I don't know much about meteorological science. Barometric pressure is lowering, does that make me, I don't, whatever. <laughs> Whenever it's more likely to rain, you know, things go down, right? You know, so, so there's more probability of them going down. Um, and when there's less probability of them going down, it's just random. So it's like more like a cloud. So it's like when it's more like a cloud, things are randomly within the register. And then when things are continuing to go down, they're going down more often. Um, the this is something you know that there's a couple reasons why. So so this leads itself to gradual gradual transformation, extremely gradual transformation. I can gradually speed up. I gradually increase the volume, and I gradually move from random to descending lines, and then back up. The descending lines are kind of like these like constantly random. It's like a barber's pole. Like the like the shepherd tone, which is this constantly revolving thing, which moves down. Except it's random. You know, it's like this randomly constantly. It's like oh, it keeps falling down. Mm. I do the exact same thing with spatialization, where it's constantly moving randomly or clockwise or counterclockwise. So it's constantly like you know doing this or you know just you know randomly sorry. And so it's, there's there's a very clear correlative between the pitch um, shepherd tone statistical shepherd tone and the um, spatialization uh, positioning. So why did I do this? Um, <laughs> there's, it's kind of poetic. Like, I, you know, there's a couple of things that I, a couple of, very much inspired by nature. Um, two examples I think of really always, I always remember was when, you probably live in cold climates. We live in Miami now, but mm -hmm. I remember living in Montreal. <laughs> like, you know, when, when, when winter is, you know, the edge of winter or the edge of spring, you know, when, when you watch, you know, rain, which is, and then gradually it slows down and it turns into snow, which is slow and random and drilled. And then gradually speeds up and it turns back into rain. You know, I remember I would just, I would, in that time of year, I would just stand outside and just marvel at these transitions. Or like watching, you know, you know, when I live in San Diego, watching the, the clouds of fog come off the ocean, you know, you see it coming, you know, it, you can see there's this tendency for something to happen and then it's just there. It's a, And beyond that also, I think, you know, it has a lot to do with, I think, I mean, this is a sort of a spiritual concept in terms of like um, Buddhism often talks about the idea of, um, you know, we don't have a state. We don't have a way in which we exist. We're just this constant movement between things, you know. And so being that there isn't this finalized state, that things are always transitioning from one state of things, from one set of patterns to another set of patterns, I think is a really sort of nice sort of correlative to that. So um, that's 
that has been largely the inspiration for that algorithm. I've used it in a lot of pieces. Um, in this specific piece, it's all generated by the computer. The various parameters like range, speed, um, jitter, et cetera, et cetera, those are controlled by performers. And they have they can sort of, you know, control it faster or slower based upon they trying to aim for this like smoothest as possible aesthetic. But yeah, the other pieces, sometimes I have the performer do it as well as a computer simultaneously. So there's this friction between the computer and the performer trying to realize the same sort of information. There's many different ways I play with it over the years. It's been really, it's been very fruitful. I like that vivid description of, of rain and snow. And uh, I was thinking of the video when you mentioned that that video starts with a slow motion that Jacek yeah. Walashinsky did. So let's just quickly touch upon that. Tell me uh, more about the collaboration between you and Jacek and how much is the collaboration between sound and visual art is crucial for experimental arts. You know, Jacek is my, co my colleague in visual arts. You know, it's, I mean, we were both, we've both admired our works, each other's works for quite a while. And you know, we spoke about collaborating. And um, at one point in our life, gosh, I think I just was like, you know, hey, we were talking about like things that he could add video to because this is a, a modality of collaboration, which he has done quite a few times, particularly with my colleague, uh, Orlando Garcia. You know, I was like saying, hey, I got this electronic piece, you know, and I you know, maybe maybe there's some, maybe you might have some ideas with this video. So, okay. And even before he heard it, he's like, you know, well, maybe I'll do something with clouds and, you know, my balcony and coral gables. And he listened to it and he's like, oh. <laughs> I got this video, The Great Wall. <laughs> we have to use this video. <laughs> like, this video is like, this is perfect. So, you know, Orlando, my colleague Orlando Garcia and I used to do concerts where we would project on the, on the, on the wall of the um, Frost Art Museum. And so we, we would do like sort of intermediate video concerts. And so we were like, we decided to put this concert on there, put that piece on that concert. <laughs> and so I think we had like three days. And so we, we sat down in his office and he's like, okay, uh, we were listening to the piece and he showed me all the videos. Okay, that video goes first, that video should go second. Maybe that one second or third. And then he was just like, okay, randomly slow him down, randomly overlap him. So I like did some, I, I did some algorithmic stuff where I was just like, okay, randomly overlap here, <laughs> randomly slow down this much. And, you know, and so there's, um, there is a video version, there is a version of this where if we perform it, there's actually a video operator, which actually clicks various buttons and controls a sort of, um, random slowing down, mm. random transitioning that sort of has a somewhat of a correlation to what's going on in the video. You know, it, it, the thing about it is, yeah, it just provides a different context. I think, you know, the slowing down the video, the, the piece is very similar to the slowing down of the audio. You know, it's, it's a very similar correlative process. You through, uh, and I mentioned the work of Maya Duran, you know, um, you know, this it's a very similar sort of thing where if you slow it down, you see certain levels of texture, certain levels of detail, which you weren't able to understand beforehand.
you know, I think also just to speak some about collaboration between different media in experimental work, I think there's a lot of importance in sort of this idea of doing cross-modal or multimodal work in contemporary work. Yeah, to go back to one of the classic works, you know, Duchamp's, you know, um, Fountain, you know, the toilet, which apparently was not, there, there's a lot of evidence that it actually wasn't made by Duchamp. You know, it opens up, you know, it could be any, art can be anything, you know. And similarly, you know, um, Cage, you know, with, with silence in 433 says, you know, we don't even need to include performance in, into his misality. You know, Cage, in the summation of, of his um, essay on experimental music, says, well, where do we go from here? Theater. You know, we combine things. You know, I think this sort of cross-modality, the experimentalism, it leads to a cross and multimodality where we're not we're no longer constrained mm -hmm. by these strictures of, of media. And I think honestly, if you look back, um, we haven't talked too much about culture, but I think culture is really something that's really important to me. Um, if you look into classical cult, if you look beyond just classical art and whatnot, I think it's a very big mm -hmm. misconception, this idea that there's classical music. No. There's classical musics. What you call classical music is the white male, largely colonial music of Western Europe. You know, <laughs> you know, there, there's there's all these tremendous cultures that are deep and vibrant and rich from throughout the world. You know, and um, if you look at a lot of these, they don't necessarily bind themselves to the media that the, in the ways that Western classical culture has. You know, music as music, visual art as visual art. You know. Dance is dance. I mean, if you look, for instance, like, I mean, I've worked a lot with Cambodian dancers, for instance, you know, in Cambodian music, in Cambodian traditional art, there's not music or dance. There's music dance. It's the same thing. It's music is not without dance. Dance is not without music. You don't separate them. They work together. Um, you know, this, there are many, many places of this throughout the world, you know, where the media are crossed. They're, they're combined. They're very much merged. And, you know, I think you know, to some extent, I think some people have lost ways just saying we work only in music, we work only in audio, we work only in video. You know, I think the ability to cross and, and um, combine media, to work across media or to like not even necessarily be bound by a specific type of media is, I think, really something that's crucial to the artist being free, as I mentioned beforehand. And I think that's really much a part of experimental work and experimental music.
If you compare, for example, across an ocean, across the land with other pieces such as mm -hmm. stone bells uh, and long reeds spinning in the wind, uh, or for example, threads of uh, wind for saxophone, quartet and electronics, the piece, mm -hmm. the piece stone bells and long reeds spinning in the wind is for piano. How the approach to spectral analysis differs between them? Okay, yeah, so, so, to, so to speak about the various techniques, uh, spectral analysis techniques that are in, in these works. I mean, recently, um, and particularly in a piece, I think, you know, Threads Unraveling, for a large extent, as well as Stone Bells, something I've been interested in doing a lot recently is actually just transcription. In a piece like Across an Ocean, Across the Land, I'm very much, you know, I, as I mentioned, there's this sort of saturated abstraction of the information, of spectral analysis information. Uh, whereas in pieces like Threads of Wind, I use the same the same analyses of the Tibetan bells include, and I also include the Tibetan bells in the electronics, but I also include the relationships in dynamics between the various partials. I actually maintain those. I've been interested in when doing this in this sort of the negative space that comes when you create a translation of material. This sort of this this aura of something that was there that's no longer there. I think that there's similar works of something sort of correlative as the works of Peter Almaguer recently. Peter Almaguer is very much obsessed with the idea of translation. He has works, famously the works for voices and piano, where he uses um, analyses of various people's speeches and has those speeches being spoken at the same time as a piano playing various sorts of analyses or um, the piece where a player piano plays a spectral analysis of Schoenberg complaining about recording of one of his works, mm -hmm. for instance, or, you know, pieces where, for instance, percussion plays the sound of rain or a pianist plays the sound of static on a vinyl record that's playing with it at the same time. You know, those are very direct correlatives. And I think, you know, this, this sort of idea of information and transcription, what does transcription mean and how do we gather information from things is something which really gets brought out in, in Obinger's work. But from something that I find that very interesting is sort of the, the absence or the sort of the aura. So, you know, for instance, in a piece like Stone Bells, you don't hear the stone bells, but you hear the relationships quantized to, you know, to 12 tone equal temperament instead of the actual frequencies, which they are, and, you know, and very similar approximations of the, the, the intervallic or the, the, the dynamic intervals between the various partials as realized by pianists, you know, as from a transcription of me just banging at one time. So, I mean, the, you get this aura, this, you can get this sort of tacit sense of, of the thing itself without actually hearing it. And I think, you know, the other part in that piece in Stone Bells is you also, I, I do transcriptions and sort of these rough transcriptions of the sounds of the, of these, of these reeds themselves mm -hmm. spinning with these, these kites, Cambodian kites um, that I recorded in Cambodia uh, for my, for my mentor, uh, uh, the, the, preeminent Cambodian-American composer, Chinari Ung, uh, who had been dreaming of recording these since the late 60s. You know, and I, I, in the process, I was trying to gather the spirit, but like also sort of like, what is, what, what's missing from the sound when you, when you transcribe it, when you do this? And for me, that's just something, this sort of negative space is just something that was, I've, I found interesting in, in, in work like that. And a piece like, you know, Threads of Wind, the, the relationship between that kind of negative space and the actual sound itself is intriguing because a lot of times I, I find that the performers will actually, and I've done this in other pieces too, since similar things in other pieces, instrumental synthesis and electronics before, the performers will actually tune to the actual sounds. You actually get something which becomes much more of that hybrid. And it's almost like 
the relationship between, for instance, you have an actor and you have a film and the film subsumes the actor. So this suddenly the actor's in this film or suddenly the film becomes real and is part of the actor's life itself. So there's, it's something just, I find hmm. it's, it's, it can be really compelling musically and engaging. So it's something I've, I've tried to play with in many different ways throughout the years. And before we hear uh, this piece, uh, Stone Bells and Long knee Reeds Spinning in the Wind, just to ask you, uh, is it composed uh, for the well-tempered piano? Yeah, it's just a normal piano. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, a normal piano. You, so you practically transposed the sound of the instrument, that clang ek. What is actually clang ek? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I'm trying. Oh, gosh. No, there's, uh, the clang ek is, is the long... The Cambodian traditional Khmer kites are these are really mm -hmm. long, like seven, eight feet. And they have this on them, they have this like blade, which is this long reed, which is connected with string and it spins. Mm -hmm. It creates these really strange timbres and melodies mm -hmm. um, when it when it when it when it flies and when it's um in the wind. And I I made recordings where I actually put a wireless mic on the kite as mm -hmm. it flight. Apparently, some of the Cambodians were telling me that. The sound of the kite is what the gods hear, the Cambodian gods hear. So it's like I actually trend, actually captured what the gods are hearing in Cambodian folklore. I also had the the director of the National Kite Museum actually took a one of those blades and connected it to a string and performed it by spinning it around. Mm. And I actually spent some time directing him as I did recordings of those. So those were what comprised the materials that I used um, while transcribing. Um, I also, you know, there's also a certain amount of, you know, just orchestration and just you know creative energy in there that sometimes i'm doing something which I'm, i'm writing material which actually resembles the behavior of the kites it's not literally transcribed from it some there is material which is to some extent indistinguishable from what was recording transcription and what i just did in the behavior or the pattern of the behavior
Let's move on to uh, vanish into the clouds. Yeah. That is the piece for cello and live electronics. Mm -hmm. Some of your projects and compositions stand out because they're based on the neuroscience of music and cognitive processes driven by music. I'm talking about the performance installation with the cellist Jason Calloway and the project for cello with brainwave controlled electronics, transduced metal percussion and live electronics. So the name of this piece is Vanished into the Clouds for Cello and Live Electronics. Tell me more about this piece. Uh, tell me how did you get into the neuroscience of music and what was the result of that project? As I mentioned with like, you know, across the land and um, or across the ocean, across the land previously, a lot of my works exist in different formats and different modalities. And the same can be said actually about Vanishing the Clouds. Vanishing the Clouds was originally just a piece for solo, cello, and electronics with no, with no amount of neural feedback as part of it. It was part of actually, it was, it was, it was a piece of, it was a really hard piece to write actually. It was one of the first times in many years that I actually consciously made a structural break. Like for me, for, I think I, there was a period of about four or five years when I had done, tried to write music, which was constantly transitional without structural breaks. And when I was writing this piece, I was like, all right, it's enough of that. <laughs> I need to, I need, I need to do, I need to just solid, do solid structural breaks. And, you know, a lot of my reason for that was just to like, you know, I discovered a lot experimenting with just consistent changes um, in music, but I wanted to see, there's a certain drama that comes with the sudden dramatic break. I mean, I'm very much a fan of literature and very much a fan of reading. I read, my father was an English professor and the house that I grew up in as a child, every single room had four to five bookcases full of books. So it's just, you know, I, I read a novel a week on average. You know? So I, literature is very important to me. It means a lot. It's how we understand the human nature. Um, one of the best ways to understand human nature. Um, it adds to our life experience. So, and you know, so much of the thing when I look at literature is the fact that there are structural breaks, you know, <laughs> that is very much the key to, to literature. You know, there, there are these like things change. Um, so, when I was thinking about wanting to do this, I was thinking about um, a, a book that I had read a number of years uh, prior um, called uh, Tale of the Genji, which is a, a Japanese novel by um, Lady Murasaki. It's often quoted as the first novel. It's just over a thousand years old, I think. Um, it's very long. It's like 1,500 pages. There's, there's a chapter in there which is called Vanishing the Clouds. And Vanishing the Clouds, it's notable because it doesn't exist. It, there are there's there are two theories. One of which is that it's lost. Mm -hmm. The other which is that it's an expression of the the writer's sorrow, um, because Genji is you know the eponymous character of the novel. Before Vanishing the Clouds, he's alive. After Vanishing the Clouds, he's dead. So one idea is the fact that you know it's blank on purpose. So that it was written and it was left empty because the author could not write it because it's just, you know, it vanished into the clouds. He's gone. Um, so, I mean, this was, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. This is a fascinating idea over a thousand years ago, a chapter that does not exist on purpose. You know, it's how modern can you get? And, you know, and, and the later chapters in the book, which are often referred to as the Uji chapters, are just incredibly psychological. They're just, they could have been written in the 21st century. Um, they're fascinating. So it's just, it was something, the idea of trying to use or be inspired by this book to write music was something that would just like kind of struck out to me. I have a cycle of four pieces for solo string instruments and and uh, 
live electronics. This is the first in there. And the, the last three are, um, I'll deal with the Uji chapters, which followed this. So unlike the chapter, it's not blank. <laughs> uh, it's just, it was just sort of an evocative thing. But I was also very much interested. In, I was writing this, you know, sort of, I think, largely in the tail end of the um, Occupy Wall Street movement in, in America. It was, you know, it's it's a time where I think, you know, there's a lot of awareness and something I've been aware of for quite some time of wealth inequality in the world, you know. And so this idea of like a, a musical poverty was something that interested me. So I was like very much interested in this idea of transcend a music which is impoverished, for lack of a better word, it doesn't rely upon traditional melody, doesn't rely upon traditional harmony. It's just I mean, the cellist plays a single string for, I think, two minutes straight, you know. So it was trying to combine these ideas. Um, so that was the original influences for the piece. And there's also, there's a passage um, where I use the cloud algorithm. I just wrote it, I used it to produce melodies, uh, these sort of lilting melodies. And then I, to make this extreme rupture, I, I the rate of the speed goes from about um, one note every, I want to say, 600 milliseconds to one note every eight seconds. You know, it's just this like suddenly it's a sudden rupture. So it was a rather extreme dynamic change um, or a rhythmic change that I thought was just be really dramatic and really interesting. It later became part of, I mean, it's, it exists as its work. It exists as part of this larger cycle. Um, and later I've been working for many years. I worked on this set of projects. I've been working on sort of open set of projects, which I call um, spaces to listen to from within. The idea being that I'm very much interested in the relationship between spaces in the ab most abstract sense in which we can understand things, be they psychological, be they acoustic, be they resonant, just the basic resonance between spaces in which we exist. And I've always been fascinated by the brain perception and cognition um, and various things like this. And I remember going to uh, the International Computer Music Conference in 2015 and seeing that I'm going to a poster session. And there was this guy who was showing these works with the Interaxon Muse, which is a consumer-priced medical-grade EEG. You know, it's ostensibly sold for meditation purposes, but it had a terrific mm -hmm. uh, SDK, sound developer kit, or kit for, you know, for development of various tools. And he was talking about it. And it's just like, afterwards, it's like, you know, I've been, a, I've been in love with the idea of, like, the way we engage with sound. And I'm, what... And I'd thought for a long time also about writing a piece um, using haptic response. Alvin Lucy has a great piece called Haptic Response is, is a way in which we can measure emotional response. It's classically it's the lie detector, you know, which has largely been discredited in terms of telling lies, but it's it's you know a way in which we, we can measure arousal, you know, by develop the, the electrical conductivity, you know, inside between various points in our skin. Alvin Lucy has a great piece where you use um, haptic skin response to control the speed of a clock. He also has insulation. Use haptic skin response on a plant. <laughs> the plant controls the speed of a clock. So I've been very much interested in how I could do this for a long time, and, and particularly the idea of having a performer go through the process. Actually, what happens if, with extremely contrasting music, if we could observe really how the performer's mental activity is engaging with the the music and presented? So. I bought one and I, I, I developed this large piece, which is about, a, about it's a concert length. It's about um, anywhere between 60 to 80 or 90 minutes, depending upon how the performer plays it, with various sort of modular works that map sound data from the Muse Interaxon to various parameters in a way which 
I try to make, you know, sonically interesting, but also to some extent revelatory to both the audience and the performer so that they can actually engage with a certain level. So the performer can engage with biofeedback and the, and the audience can be sort of aware of how the performer is actually engaging with himself and his own awareness and of the music itself. You used a, a similar concept in the composition, a few tones for Pauline Oliveros. Yeah, right? the, yeah, that's the fourth piece in the, the that's the fourth piece in the, in, in 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 the large concert work. There's four components. One of which is an installation component, which is just the for the most of the work, it's it's I refer to them as interludes. It's the performer just sitting, and there are these tones which um, correlate to um, basically the things I'm measuring are. are was referred to as um, interoception. Interoception is the idea that our brain is constantly monitoring our body and monitoring our brain. Um, it's sort of low-level cognition or neurosciences. So, and among these two interoception parameters, one of which is concentration, how much we concentrate. So I get a data from zero to one. Mm -hmm. I believe it's roughly correlated to uh, gamma waves, which are frequencies, don't quote me on this, I think between 12 and 15 hertz, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. And then alpha waves, which are roughly between 8 and 12, correspond to calmness. So I get this, these measurements of both calmness and concentration. So if he concentrates roughly in the interludes, you hear sounds, you hear these tones. And if he doesn't concentrate, <laughs> you don't hear anything at first. And then if he's calm these, calm, these tones pulsate. If he's not calm, they pulsate very quickly. If he's calm, they pulsate very soon. Mm. And the other thing is, whenever the performer blinks, there's mm -hmm. a bell. <laughs> just because. Oh, just the real bell. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's actually, it's my Tibetan bells mm -hmm. tuned at the same frequency ratios as in, uh, as in the previous piece we just spoke, <laughs> because, you know. So the, oh, the audience can hear like two sounds. One is from acoustic originally, uh, the instruments cello provides, and the second is generated by the electronics, by the computer, right? Yeah, you can hear that. And there's also live processing of the cello itself. Um, in, in pieces such as, in the first three pieces, uh, Vanishing Crowds is the first, and there's two others. The interludes do not sound for the majority of the piece. They overlap to this sort of silent passage in between where he just basically meditates and focuses on the sound. But on the last piece, a few, a few tones, the interlude lasts for the entire work. And there's also this component of what I call like concentration achievements. So if he hears or if he concentrates for a long enough time a new tone comes in mm -hmm. so and these tones progressively lower through a set mm -hmm. of sequences that i that i pre-composed -pre because i just thought they sounded cool and so it's sort of like a way that he can be aware that oh yeah, i'm getting better at this or i'm sustaining this and you can sort of i often, I often think about i remember reading the bhagavad gita um, i want to say like 20 years ago and there's this there was an idea in there that i really loved which is like when you when you gain, when you when your karma increases, when you do well, and you climb up the spiritual ladder, you never go down. You just mm -hmm. keep going up, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I like that idea of like you know you've concentrated, you've done this. It's an achievement. So there's this progression to the tones. 
I think there's 11 of them, if I remember correctly, uh, which all correspond to harmonics of, of the C string. An entire, the entire piece actually is, is, has relationships to the uh, harmonic series and distortion of the harmonic series of the low C string of a cello. The last segment uh, of this conversation, I think we should dedicate to your ensemble, Misty Shore Duo. Oh, yeah. You were very productive, you and your wife. During the pandemic, there are seven albums uh, on Bandcamp. There was a series of concerts live streamed from your apartment. We did eight concerts live streamed from our apartment. Yeah. 
It's a great base of contemporary music from Schomburg uh, through Alvin Lucier, your music, Toru Takamitsu, yeah. uh, Orlando Garcia. So they're really, it's a great base. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. <laughs> you call them apartment albums and yeah. all of them are available on Mr. Short Duo Band page. So share some of ex the exciting moments and details from, uh, let's say, from your apartment or from that time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you know, we, we, Gosh, you know, you know, when, when the pandemic started, I, I just, I had an inkling that this was going to last a long time, you know, and here we are <laughs> like over a year later and, and in Taiwan, I'm still shut down and in American cases are rising. So I was just like, you know, you know, we, I got, we gotta, we gotta find a way to connect with each other, you know, and do music, you know, cause even though we're not really going to be able to do concerts. So I think it was within a week of things shutting down in America. The first order, one of the first orders I made online was it was an Ethernet cable. We have Google Fiber in our building, so I was like, "We're doing concerts, <laughs> like, you know, like we're going to find a way to like live stream concerts, and we're going to we're just going to do it." So that was yeah, that was something like early on. I didn't get started until like after the semester ended. I think we didn't really start to get full heard. I didn't really still have to have the time until May. Um, thankfully at FIU, things closed rather early. So the idea was just like, we want to present music. You know, we want we want to have the ability to do concerts and try to get the best possible audio to, you know, present music that we that we find interesting and compelling, you know, into people's audiences and in people's homes so they can have some sort of connection since we can't see each other in person. We can't do this in person. So that was that was really like the, the large impetus to it initially. The other thing was the fact that we had often talked, talked about the idea of just, you know, you know, in pop music, there's, there's the bedroom recordings, right? You know, people, do, you know, <laughs> you know, all these artists that, you know, they do the recordings in their bedrooms, you know, uh, and, you know, it's kind of, it's charming. There's something, you know, wonderfully intimate about it, you know, and um, I was just like, you know, why don't we live in an apartment, you know, classical music is such an exalted thing. Why don't we just do it in our apartment? I got really good mics. We got a nice piano. Like I could do my absolute best to make the sound as good as it would in a studio. So it's like, you know, if we're going to do these recordings, you're going to prepare these Gen Wave. If you're going to play all these, prepare all these concerts and I'm going to prepare all the tech and stuff, why don't we just like record it right after we prepare it, you know, and just put it up so we can do that? We were originally going to do them every week. Um, but after the first, after we did the first one. I was just like, there's no way we're doing this every week. So we, so we did every other week and we did a lot of them through the summer. We did, we did seven, I think we did seven through the summer, last summer, every two weeks, um, where we would, we had this large Google doc with all these works that she had played beforehand pieces that I thought we should do because we thought she thought we should do. And then we would record them afterwards and do albums. There's one piece we didn't record, one concert we didn't record, which was James Romig's still, um, which is a concert length piece, largely because his wife had played it, you know, there was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and I just, we just, we didn't feel like we should make another album to compete with, you know, the income that would be coming from his wife for, for having the sole um, recording out there. But the rest of what we did record every other album um, that we, an album of every other concert. I mean, we, we kind of, we stopped and we stopped in August because two reasons. One, we were burned out. It was a lot of work. And, and, and um, the last one, I remember there was a thunderstorm that happened during the concert and, you know, the internet got screwed up. And it's, mm. it's funny. I remember when I was a kid, we would go and unplug our computers whenever there was a thunderstorm. And nowadays here I'm live streaming a concert during a thunderstorm. Oh yeah. Who knew the internet would go out? <laughs> oh yeah. Mm -hmm. it's obvious it should have gone. So that kind of, that was very frustrating. I remember. And um, another thing also, I just have to admit, is like, 
it's lovely to one thing that's nice about live streams is you can actually see audience members there as you're doing it and you know that you're actually connecting with people but you know i i missed connecting with people you know so much you know i was hearing the music myself in person but like you know i found that i couldn't listen to other people's live streams like i couldn't listen i didn't care i was just like i this isn't sounds this is not going to sound as good as it does in person i don't want that that's what means the most to me you know that's that's what's magical we have come to the end of today's show you have been listening to the conversation with the composer performer and associate professor at fiu jacob sudol uh, thank you, Jacob. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Paige. It's been a real pleasure. I'm sure my listeners enjoyed this conversation and got a much broader sense of the possibilities of new technologies in creating experimental music, uh, what the music technology and composition department at FIU offers to students, and finally, uh, to familiarize uh, with your work. Uh, for more information about your works and different streaming channels, uh, check all links in the description. Uh, to find more about Sandologia, to hear more about our guests and listen to our previous shows, please visit us at soundologia.com. Our next guest is Jose Veliz, a Miami-based composer, performer and educator. I'm your host, Peja Kovacevic, and if you have any comments or recommendations, do not hesitate to write to us. Sumbo Gia.